This red carpet season, enjoy the award-winning entertainment you love with AT&T's Unlimited and More Premium Plan. Go to att.com slash unlimited to learn more. Hello and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly. We're taking you inside this year's best contenders for the industry's biggest awards. I'm your host, Shana Naomi Crockmall. I'm the digital director at EW, and I'm joined this week by two of my favorite colleagues, Katie Hasty, the senior film editor for EW, and Pia Sinha Roy, EW's senior writer and who, the writer of the Awardist Weekly column. This podcast is part of our comprehensive awards coverage in the magazine and online at EW.com. Today, we are talking about the race for best director, what happened at the Critics' Choice Awards, and later in the show, we will hear from one of the leading director contenders, Adam McKay. We'll continue our bold takes, big predictions from our hosts and guests on how this all ends on the other side, and we will continue to talk about what's going to happen at the end of this crazy award season with the Oscars. All right, so Critics' Choice Awards, we're Sunday night. We're definitely in like the thick of award season now, right? There's one after another after another. Some oh, of yeah, them are in it. bigger than others. Some of them are more important than others. Critics' Choice Awards had an, you know, have an unusual structure in that they allow for ties. So we had two kind of great moments during that where um, both on the TV side for limited series, Amy Adams for Sharp Objects and Patricia Arquette for Escape at Danamora both won and um, in fact, took the award together and like talked both of them about how amazing it was to be on stage with all these women. And then on the film side, Glenn Close for The Wife and Lady Gaga for A Star is Born also tied, uh, which I think is, I mean, I think there are so many powerful performances by women mm -hmm. this year that I'm, I guess if I could give ties at other award shows, if we were in charge of that, I can see how that, or if other people were in charge of that, I can see how that might happen. Anyway, those are definitely two categories where it's difficult to choose one, let alone two, or two, let alone one. Um, do we think this makes any difference in the actress race where after the Globes, I think we've talked about how Glenn Close really seems to be the leading favorite? I think the Golden Globes and her, um, I think she was very much in contention, but outside of the industry, I don't think many people know what The Wife is or necessarily have seen it. It's very, it's a small independent movie, um, although now it's expanding out after her win, which is great. So, and, and I recommend uh, going to see it because she is wonderful in it. But it really comes down to like, she was a contender, but I think the kind of starriness of Lady Gaga was overshadowing mm -hmm. a lot of that. And then there's also Olivia Coleman, who, because she's also going to be on next season of The Crown, so there was a lot of buzz around her as well. Both are and incredible. And she picked up at the Critics' Choice Award because mm -hmm. they have a separate category for comedy and right. for ensembles, so she actually won twice. Yeah, there. which is, I'm all for Olivia sure. Coleman winning Everything. all of them, really. Lots but, of but I did think that like Glenn Close just did this, had, had a beautiful speech uh, on stage at the Golden Globes when she did win, and that put her firmly not only back into the race, but very yeah. much now suddenly the kind of the one to beat because and this has a little momentum. she hasn't won. Yeah. She's never won an Oscar over her very illustrious career. So. And, and with the Golden Globes, that was her first <clears throat> win for a film, actually. I, mm. I think when you think Glenn Close, you think a lot more about her um, her film reputation and um, her iconic um, roles. And I think the, you know, the wife is really helps her out because it is a sh it is a showcase. It is mm -hmm. a Glenn Close 
two hours with Glenn Close, which is like the most delightful two hours you can really think of, except she's terrifying um, as a performer in this because she's quiet and easy and, and mm -hmm. it's easy to watch. Olivia Coleman, it, 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 that's such an ensemble piece. I mean, they must have been tearing their hairs out when they're thinking about, okay, are we going to do Rachel and Emma for, for supporting? And then Olivia, it's, I mean, it's Olivia's show. But you look at a show like Critics' Choice, um, you know, from this weekend, and it's easy to see why people chose Olivia Coleman. It shakes it up, shakes up the race. I would say just a little bit um, in that just people who who managed to see the favorite mm -hmm. um, just are really bowled over because it's so over the top. The whole thing is so over the top and uh, funny and she gets to play, you know, this very tragic figure on top of being almost sinister. And um, and, and so it's it's a really beautiful showcase for her. But I, I still yeah. feel like it's Glenn's show. Yeah. And the other big winners at the Critics' Choice Award were not super surprising, right? So Roma won Best Picture, Alfonso Cuaron Best Director, Christian Bale also managed to win twice, but for the same movie because he won for Best Actor and Best Actor in a Comedy. There's a comedy and an action category. I'm kind and, of loving these <laughs> but random no drama categories. One. It's, I mean, yeah, so <laughs> there's that. Um, Herschel Ali won for Best Supporting for Green Book and Regina King again for If Beale Street. So the same as the Golden Globes there, and I feel like those two are clearly seem to be the front runners for that yeah. kind and of I category. Feel like yeah. This may foreshadow the Oscars a little bit. I think Black Panther remains in the conversation. In it the didn't Oscars even win Best Action. It didn't get crazy. Best Action, which is wild, but it did come away with the, from the night with the most awards out of any film, which you should, like, scratching your head. It was costume design, production design, visual effects, and I think that might be what we see a repeat of mm -hmm. at the Oscars themselves. Except a bunch of the Which I don't, you know, you look deserves. at a film as, yeah, you look at a film as accomplished as Black Panther is, and you want, in a way, you're like, I want better for it, but like, but it was accomplished in so many different ways, and you don't want to overshadow the be below the line, the post-production, everything that that mm -hmm. film offers. One sort of surprise for me from Critics' Choice was Paul Schrader picking up Best Original Screenplay for First Reformed. Katie, you're pumping your fist. Tell me why you because think that was the right Because First Reformed choice. is my favorite film from 2018. And what? Yeah. I don't think I knew that, really. I know. I love it. I think Paul is just, he's so wild. And I think that film is so wild. And I, I'm so glad that it exists in this film, in this film world that we're looking at in this this Oscars race, because it is, it, it has its own voice. It's got a unique um, small story to it. Um, it is, it's got, you know, dream sequences and uh, Amanda Seyfried and Ethan Hawke on his like, on his road to like Hollywood, you know, A-list glory forever and ever. I just, I love that. And I, I think Paul is such a, a, a force. And so it's just really cool to see him get if, something out. This if you season. are listening, I think you can hear the smile in Katie's voice. <laughs> but I wish I had a camera right now to show you that she's literally beaming talking about this film in this like I love film. proud way. It's great. No, it's wonderful. <laughs> I haven't seen First Reformed yet, and now I'm going to. Um, adapted screenplay went to Barry Jenkins for his take on James Baldwin's novel, If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, and, you know, I think there are some historical trends that we pulled that we looked at. So over the last decade or so, the Critics' Choice Awards have correct, correctly predicted the eventual Oscars winner for Best Picture seven times. Seven out of ten is a pretty good, a pretty good run. So that puts Roma 
um, statistically in this small sample in a good place. Um, best actor even more often, eight times, so Christian Bale mm -hmm. sitting pretty there. Best actress six times, so, but that's of course now a tie, so yeah. split that a little bit. Um, and then I think one thing that I've appreciated, Pia, you've been able to help put in context as we've been talking about this is like, who, who are the critics of the Critics' Choice? <laughs> um, so they're the Broadcast Film Critics Association, but it's only about 250 people, right? Yeah. Um, television, radio, online critics, bigger than the HFPA, but nowhere near the scale of the guilds or the Motion Picture Academy. Yeah, these are, and these are all journalists who are kind of working and operating out of LA and mainly covering the entertainment industry. So they're very inside it all, I think. And all the picks that they've made, there's no surprises here in this list. In fact, because they give so many awards, they got to actually reward even more of the people who are front runners in this race than than the other awards have had a chance to do. So all the things that we've seen come out here, I think these were all uh, very much in the conversation already. And, you know, I think I, I feel like at this stage, you know, I think there are certain races that we can actually hone down on now mm -hmm. and be like, for, for me, I think Roma is very much kind of the one to beat right now in the best picture race. Although I wouldn't rule out A Star Is Born, but I think Roma is the one that consistently, when you look at the film as a whole and the vision that uh, Alfonso Cuaron brings to it, it is very much his very precise vision and it is an absolute masterpiece of filmmaking. Um, and, I, and no matter what I've been seeing, um, that's what Roma has stood out to me with. And I, and I do think that that's going to help it uh, because that best picture race is going to be pretty stacked, I think, with mm -hmm. some very strong contenders. Mm -hmm. But maybe it is just when you're looking at the all rounder, Roma might be the one that kind Checks of delivers all of that. And, and Alfonso to me is definitely the front runner in that director's race. So the director's race, let's get into this. Yeah. We wrote about it this week. Um, you've, we've seen a lot of, you know, the Critics' Choice Awards is interesting because it's really, it's the last big awards that happened before the close of nominations Correct. for the Oscars, which happened yesterday. Monday was the cutoff. Um, one thing I want to talk about before we get into that race, you know, we were talking about Green Book last week, Pia, mm -hmm. you and me and Bill Keith, and the power went out. <laughs> it's sort of an awkward end to that conversation. And there were there were a couple of points you made that I thought were so smart that I just wanted to pick up real quickly, especially because you know, I think up until the Golden Globes and, and with the Golden Globes win, Peter Farrelly was very much considered a major contender for that Best Director award. So, yes. Um, but I feel like that's changed. And we talked about that some last week. And a couple of things, you know, I think for all the joking conversations we've had about like, what even does a director do as we've watched some of these films get nominated, <laughs> but their directors not get nominated. It, it is a very, you know, important sort of chief executive of the film kind of role. And I think a lot of that is coming back. So a lot of these questions about Green Book are coming back to Peter Farrelly now in a, in a very difficult way for him. Um, and it doesn't help that he hasn't really addressed almost any of it head on. Right. Um, then, since then, he's been, you know, sort of skirting his way around. Then this week, this last week, he had to, he didn't have to, but he did sort of apologize after a quote surfaced from an old Newsweek story from 1998 in which Cameron Diaz talked about how the first time they met to make the truth about Mary, he flashed her. And he, you know, then was responding to that. He said, I was an idiot. I did this decades ago. I thought I was being funny. Um, he did say he was deeply sorry for that. 
but it, it's gotten into a little bit of a place of spin. The controversies like don't really stop. Nick Vallonga, who mm -hmm. co-wrote the film and is the son of the character played by Viggo Mortensen, um, he had to. He also apologized after an older tweet from 2015. Not that old, from 2015. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to be clear, was found in which he endorsed Donald Trump's debunked claim that there were Muslims cheering in the New Jersey streets after 9/11. He apologized for that. He apologized to Mahershala Ali, who is Muslim yeah. in particular. Um, but, you know, not not a great run for this film. I and, <laughs> and that's sort of setting aside even the larger, I think, really important yeah. questions about how the movie is framed, who it's about, what it's based on. What's your take now? I think it's been a pretty brutal week uh, after the Golden Globes win for Greenberg. I think there were already problems arising for the film. And this is something that for those who aren't really paying attention to the kind of insider element of Hollywood, this is where awards campaigning starts to get nasty. Um, there are a lot of, you know, conversations around how these old stories or tweets and things surfaced. Like, how did they get to the attention of certain reporters and who's involved? And this is awards campaigning. It gets a little dirty. Um, these stories and things existed, but quite honestly, who's necessarily going to go digging for a 1998 yeah. Newsweek article. I mean, uh, actually, with I'm kind of shocked that took this long, given like what that <laughs> right. like and uh, the conversation we've been having about directors and about what's appropriate and what's not. I'm, I'm that one. I was almost surprised that no one else remembered Cameron Diaz having said that or that story. Yeah. Now that I that read that story for the first time. Ago. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe that story. By the way, I was Peter Farrelly was 41 years old and finding ways with his 40 year old brother to flash as a joke all the members, like crew and cast of, of their films, and they did it to numerous people. And if you now look at that and what that means, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter if you're, it, it, you, so you can't really say sorry for the ridiculousness that, like, you're directing, of that. I mean, I've never directed a film, but I've, I've run a business and I've run things, you know, before. And I think the idea that you're in that moment and what you think is most important is your ability to do something like that rather than, right. you know, really competently and appropriately manage an incredibly large production mm -hmm. is is still shocking to me. And I think this actually, I mean, just the, the idea of pranks on a, on a set of a comedy, a little bit of boys will be boys conversation has come up e even in last year's Oscars race yeah. um, when we were talking about the disaster artist and what was going on with James Franco. Um, on the set of that, and let alone James Franco's other controversies. I think, especially with Peter Farrelly in this race, is that the the beginning, the through line of Green Book, when the film was first introduced to audiences, was like, yeah, this is the guy who co-created Dumb and Dumber. Like, can you believe he has this, like, this, you know, uh, uh, almost that. like a comedian, like, well, uh, like a, he has, uh, he, he didn't create a drama, he made a, a, a a, a dramedy about Green in Green Book, and it was a little bit like he, you know, it took him a long time to sell this, and it took, you know, people mm -hmm. were like, that guy, you know, he's going to make this, mm -hmm. and I think that will that can come to bite you in the butt because because ultimately, if that's if that's the through line you want to do, then you should probably from the start be in some ways being like, ah, you know, this wasn't my realm before, and yeah. I am glad to be in the mix. Thanks for having me. You know, not, not that that's like, <laughs> I've grown up now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think there was that way in which I think some of, I would assume some of the defensive avoidance that we've seen from him, mm -hmm. it does 
come out of this place where when you've been making comedies, these broad, dirty comedies for a long time, you're not called on to have the same level of accountability for right. the artistic choices and the like very significant questions about your problematic choices you made along the way is especially from when he was making those movies, not something he probably has experience with. I'm, this is not an excuse. I'm just saying I'm not surprised we're not getting much back from him, but it's disappointing. And I think ultimately it's hurting his own film and the work he's done, which maybe is the way it needs to go. Like maybe that's the moral of the story. I think asking the questions and, and maybe not having answers to this, maybe these are things he considered and this is this is an awkward time. And I think just continuing to ask these yeah. questions, then mm -hmm. we quit running into issues like this. Um, with pictures that could be considered problematic or pictures that could yeah. be considered white savior or um, you know following these tropes as those start to get whittled away maybe in 10 years the conversation looks a little bit different yeah and I also think just there's so many uh, controversies that have come out about Green Book it's not just one it's about like five or six at this mm -hmm. point and the biggest issue I think for a lot of filmmakers is that the portrayal of Don Shirley Maharshal Ali's character in this uh, the family of Don Shirley came out to say they had never been contacted and that the portrayal of Don's relationship with his family in the film is not accurate and I think if you're a filmmaker and you know, you're, you're portraying real people in your film, you should know and definitely should make sure you're checking with all parties. And I think that's actually, even if you're ignoring all the other stuff, that I think is a crucial uh, element that's a black yeah. mark against This that was movie. the point you and Bill made last week that I couldn't stop thinking about, which is that it's one thing for the HFPA to be like, here's this movie, it, you're looking at the end result, but when you're talking about all the rest of the awards now are voted on by peers. The nominations yeah. are and the awards. So the directing, the producing, the screenwriting, and for anyone who's made a film that involves a real person, I think there's gonna be that question mark of what due diligence, like how did you miss this? Like how did you, and if you did do it, why didn't you document it better? Why didn't you message yeah. this better? Why didn't you bring them into the fold in some way? And if there's a you know debate about like what we want to say like which version of the story but the you know the having missed that box on the checklist before you get to the making of a film yeah. of getting that buy-in or at least having that conversation with the additional families of people who are still living yeah uh is i think i just couldn't stop thinking about the way that you and bill had talked about that and how that's going to among their peers be a much even you know as yeah. serious a challenge as these other questions yeah it's it's got a i i think i've got to say i think the green book uh steam is running out yeah and uh i'm very fascinated to see how well it does in oscar nominations because mm -hmm. all of this really kind of picked up yeah, yeah, there was enough, I mean, voting. from anything from now on won't be accommodated in that decision making, but there no. was quite a bit before that cutoff. And I yes. think it's still going to, I think the, the focus then shifts to Mahershala, because I yes. think he still, right. still very much feels like Mahershala's in True Detective on HBO, and he is, or I've only seen one episode so far, and he is breathtaking. And I think He's that's amazing. what you look at, right? Yeah. Like, the one person who actually hasn't been caught up in any of the drama with this movie is Mahershala Ali. Yeah. And I think... He is consistently such a stunning actor to watch, uh, and I think that could that could really mm -hmm. shine for him in this. Let's talk about the rest of the race. So you, in your new column for the awardist in the magazine, talk about um, all of the leading contenders for best director and really break it down. What do this year's directors have in common? I was trying to do this because, quite honestly, it's a it's a difficult 
column to write a little bit when you have one very clear <laughs> standout mm -hmm. person above the rest. Uh, so I was trying to find a way to bring, it's like you have one person, uh, you know, right at the top and then down here, below so, him you have about I six liked, or seven people. But <laughs> I, I liked what you wrote, which was you said, wild ambition seems to be the thread tying together the vast array of films and genres. And I, I think like we saw a lot of big ideas and a lot of big execution. That's literally the only thing I can think of. When <laughs> I was thinking of I was like, you've got like superheroes in Wakanda. You've got like, you know, Ali and Jackson Maine and a star is born. You've got like, uh, you know, Dick Cheney in Vice. Yeah. How do you tie it all They're together? They're big swings. They are big okay, swings. Okay, take us through who we're talking about really as the leading contenders. So for me, like the the person that stands out above everybody else is Alfonso Cuaron here. Uh, I think he is consistently winning um, the Best Director Prize uh, throughout all the small and larger awards. And has uh, been really since the beginning of yes. like the film festivals that this was showing It debuted at, at uh, Venice last August. And then just since then, we, we spoke to him in, in Toronto, if you remember. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just since then, it has gained momentum and steam. And it's because the film sticks with you. And for most of you, you can all watch it on Netflix for sure. And if you do have a chance to go see it on the big screen, I recommend it. But that also helps when a movie is so accessible on mm. Netflix um, and it is a really really beautiful piece of filmmaking and it is absolutely um, harnessed into Alfonso's very specific vision it's his own memories his own screenplay uh, he did the cinematography as well as directing and producing this is his baby mm -hmm. and so critics have been calling it his magnum opus and I definitely I, I definitely see this film and at least his work on it as a head above the rest. Um, it's also an original story, which has been very rare to find mm -hmm. uh, in this year's race. So you've got Alfonso and then you have, um, you've got Bradley Cooper with A Star Is Born, you know, which is a, a really, really beautiful uh, directorial debut, I think, from him. And he's uh, staging himself as one to watch and, you know, as a director going ahead. Um, you have Adam McKay with Vice. If you guys are a fan of The Big Short, then you would probably enjoy Vice, I think. It's, it's been divided, but I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. It's this really scathing uh, dissection of Dick Cheney and his impact on US politics. Essentially how our nation has been destroyed, apparently, by him. Yep. It's quite uh, terrifying to watch. Uh, you have Spike Lee uh, directing the really surreal true story of Black Klansmen, uh, which I know, Kitty, you've covered extensively mm -hmm. and that's still a film that sticks with me Yorgos Lanthimos who is a, a director that I am obsessed with because of movies like The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer he's back with The Favourite uh, which is this crazy nightmare romp <laughs> through this period like if you you can't really watch any other period drama no. this year because this is just so this very isn't different even a period this is not a period drama it's a period Piece. It's a period <laughs> comedy. It's a period something. It's, sure, it's a period. <laughs> it, is, it is just so it knows exactly what it is. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's you know obviously Peter Farrelly with Green Book, but I do think the steam's mm -hmm. running out for that. Uh, and then there's someone who's kind of dropped off the race a little bit, uh, Damien Chazelle with First Man. But mm -hmm. you know that was something that uh, early on I think he delivered 
um, he delivered his best filmmaking efforts in First Man, mm -hmm. you know, to tell a, a beautiful sort of biopic of Neil Armstrong where you get to like see the space scenes. And it, I think he did a really lovely job. I just think, you know, the movie hasn't quite struck a, a chord with people that everyone hoped. Then there's also like, people on the indie side of things, right? Like Paul Schrader, best of all. Love. He's not going to get it, but love, <laughs> no, whatever. But you never know. He's He's Fine. gotten some critic love and some, so so he's kind of a, mm -hmm. he's someone sort of milling around uh, in the orbit. Bo Burnham with eighth grade that, you know, mm -hmm. Alfonso Cuaron is a huge <laughs> fan of that movie. So, you know, there are, there are definitely, um, there are definitely contenders here that I think are, are really fascinating, but I just, at the stage, like barring some big controversy, which I, I hope does not happen, I think that's it. I think this is a race that's yes. a lock for me. Yes. One one race needs to yeah. be a lock for me, one. and I think one it's should this be one. a little easier. Um, and you know, it's it's definitely um, we've definitely seen a more diverse group of directors this mm -hmm. year. Uh, when Carlin won in 2014, he was the first Mexican and first Latino filmmaker to win Best Director yeah. for Gravity. Um, but this year we've also have Spike Lee, Barry Jenkins, Ryan Coogler, all other men of color in contention, mm -hmm. um, which is definitely an interesting progression from previous years of Oscar So White. It's a good improvement to see. It is a good improvement. Not the obvious question here is where are the women? Great question. <laughs> Great question. Here, here are some women talking about where are the women. And I think this is such an exciting year for women filmmakers. I think so. So many great films, which we could spend yeah. a whole other, like we have and we will continue to talk about and boost this amazing, these amazing performers. Yeah. Last year, you know, Natalie Portman jokingly that she introduced at the Golden Globes yeah. to contenders said, here are the all male nominees. Um, and then, and then somehow all of these women who made great films this year shut out. Not in the Globes nominations, not in DGA, not in BAFTA, a few for Indie Spirits. Yeah. But of the, I mean, I think, I don't, I don't know, this is such a like disappointing, frustrating conversation to still be having. Yeah. Um, and I don't even want to say like pick one, but like who, which of these was the biggest shock or snub to you that these women weren't among the men who were nominated? So I think, well, for me, I'm, I'm going to be greedy. And two, two kind of stood out to me. I think that's Deborah Granick um, for Leave No Trace. Um, and and for her, st starting with her, if you had seen um, Winner's Bone uh, and you saw Jennifer Lawrence in her breakout, like you kind of forget that that m movie is stupendous and it, it is is it's really great cinema. And I think she took mm. what you know something I've never really seen on screen, uh, <clears throat> um, like a small you know family unit. Um, you know, living out what post-traumatic stress syndrome looks like for for soldiers, in in, in this very cinematic, quiet script, um, and and it was just such a phenomenal movie that maybe just not enough people saw. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it it doesn't splash the same way mm -hmm. that a lot of these titles do, but it is a it's a quiet drama. It's so beautiful, and Deborah is so accomplished. Um, that it, it boggles the mind that that was not more of a conversation piece. And then um, a title that I, I'm sure you guys agree, like in, in a way is not really in the awards conversation for a lot of reasons is Can You Ever Forgive Me? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And um, Mariel Such Heller. A perfectly executed, like 
classic indie film. Yeah. Like really top is. to bottom, everything really about it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's never too much, it's never too little. It is like beautiful and heartrending and like yep. feels so true and fair yeah. and and hard, yeah. but like sweet, like all of those like It's like all the things. things, it's all the things and it's funny and yeah. Judy Grant is great mm -hmm. and Melissa McCarthy's turn, like everybody's, Phenomenal. you know, nobody was biting their nails over it. I think people who saw it, you know, were very impressed by it, but again, it wasn't, and, and something, and I will not name the outlet, but I saw like, well, women probably didn't get around this year because these are such small stories, or these no. are so, is not smiling as she tells that story. <laughs> but there is like, but there is this this frustrating like where where you could you could argue, Green Book is a small story. It's based on history and, and you know whatever. What you I loved about Roma is the yeah. tiniest of all these stories. Yeah. But that's the thing is that when it comes to um, women, especially women who are living on the fringes, um, queer women. Um, these these stories that you know took place in in fairly recent history. This was set in the eighties. That movie was like Ooh. perfect in that way where it's you know how hard it is to make something look so effortless. Yeah, like it is just like here it is. Like every step is right. Yeah. Every choice yeah. is right. Yeah, and. You know, I think there's this way in which that gets underlooked because it's not this huge, dramatic, like every every tiny little choice Meryl Heller made in there was perfect. Yeah, and somehow that makes it not. But there is exciting enough. The fault of the complex woman, and I'm doing the yeah. air quotes. I'm so sorry to do that <laughs> on this podcast. Air quoting complex women. Um, that like we don't. We, who are we supposed to be pulling for? And I think actually both of these films. Yeah. These are complex people in, um, you know, in Leave No Trace, it's a complex mm -hmm. young woman um, growing up with her, her dad who makes really complicated choices for their, yeah. for their living. And can you ever forgive me? Uh, it's, not, it's not Wakanda. It's not like you yes. have a clear mm -hmm. like hero. Um, and I think some of these other films kind of do. Mm -hmm. And so that's always going to be a struggle. Yeah, I uh, I've got to I agree with you on both of those uh, directors. I think they really delivered something stunning this year, and uh, and and there are more. You know, yeah. people that I've touched on, but for me, I still cannot understand how Chloe Zhao's The Rider, which is probably one of the best films I've seen in recent history, um, how that's not getting more love in this race. Talk about directing a masterpiece here in an indie budget. Um, th this movie is just so exquisite and yet like to be shut out of everything. Like to me, it actually stands hand in hand with something like Roma, mm -hmm. you know, with the ambition that she had with it. Uh, to not see that go forward um, is really disappointing. I feel like this is like, for me, the asterisk on this entire award season, mm. right? Mm -hmm. That beautiful films across the board, yeah. really like a solid, strong year for filmmaking. Definitely. And including a tremendous amount of amazing filmmaking by women yeah. that is not in the conversation. We and had that, two, me, I feel we like had it's just gonna Marielle be... Heller and Karen Kusama on our podcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And both of that, like Karen did Destroyer with Nicole Kidman. Nicole is getting really awards love. Marielle's film, Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant are getting yeah. awards love. How is it that the filmmakers yeah. that are getting them there are not receiving that same recognition? Yeah. And yeah. I think the writer, I mean, you don't know who th this is. Uh, you could call this obscure Americana. You could call this like unknown actors, but good film is good film. I mean, you, you look at the all, and I think you're right with Roma. That's such a good comparison because that's very much still how people were talking about Roma too. Yeah. Right. I'm not Americana, but obviously in that same 
very specific. You've got unknown actors. You know, this isn't a big celeb piece. It's really a director's vision. Mm -hmm. And I think actually, if you're looking at them, they do pair up really nicely. It's just disappointing that Chloe's movie didn't move forward. But I do know that like Marielle Heller is directing Tom Hanks Mm -hmm. in the Mr. Rogers movie. Uh, I know Chloe Zhao is very much, I think she's directing uh, Marvel film coming up. I'm excited to see, maybe we can find out, like shrink some of those, like so many of these women hadn't made a movie in a number of years before they got this second one or the third one or whatever that yeah. is in their career. So maybe my hope for the asterisk of this year is that at the very yeah. least, we're going to see more work from these women come through more quickly oh, and we, really support it. Can we get them out that. of director's jail sooner? I know. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, like, how can you we parole think you? Define, define director's jail. That was Karen Kusama. And she has proven herself over and over yeah. again as being capable. Yeah. She just has really crummy circumstances a lot. This she didn't have crummy yeah. circumstances. She had a solid film yeah. about uh, it was a it was a crime thriller about self-destruction with Nicole yeah. Kidman. With Nicole Kidman, let's go. Playing what two roles? Yeah. Basically. But I've also seen the excuse of like, well, it's just a crime like and sometimes it's okay to let just a crime yeah. film be a crime film. You know what else was a crime film? The Departed in one Oscar's right. best picture. Yeah. You know, and you, we also have a superhero film in the race this year. Yeah, so, like, like what is that, that genre rule is off the table. Yeah, I thought we would be on that. All right. Uh, when we come back, we are going to talk to Vice Director Adam McKay. Um, and we're going to make one last, or maybe not last, one more bold prediction um, on where we're going. Stick around. Welcome back. Thank you all so much for joining us here at The Awardist. We're going to do one quick bold take with Pia and Katie. Um, Since we just continue to talk and talk and talk about awards, I think it's fair for us to stick our neck out a little bit, say something strong and predictive. Which category for the Oscars do you think is still most up for grabs? Pia. Oh, me first. You looked ready ready to answer. (laughs) I did look ready. uh, for me, I think it's the best adapted screenplay category. I think this category is absolutely stacked this year because everything is essentially an adapted screenplay. So, because no one does original stories that much anymore, apparently. So, uh, I think that's up in the air. I think mm-hmm. there's some really, really good contenders. Uh, I know we've got Black Panther in that race, which mm-hmm. I would love to see in some that would just be aspect. A nice, unusual like adaptation from a comic book into here. Yeah, that I think it would be, it would really elevate the genre and what Ryan Coogler did with it. Um, I know Barry Jenkins is in that race, as you mentioned with If Beale Street Could Talk. We've also got, you know, Bradley Cooper with A Star Is Born in that race, and uh, we've got Black Klansman in there, so really the full array of like almost most of the best picture race even crazy rich asians is actually mm-hmm. uh, still being thrown around in that because that was another huge hit and obviously adapted from very popular books so um there's a lot of really fascinating up in the air. yeah I'm, okay. I'm interested to see even the shortlist for that because i yeah. couldn't even come up with it yeah necessarily okay katie what do you think is still most up for grabs i think what's up for grabs still is best actors. Um, I think it's not that it's like 16 really great um, contenders. There there were wonderful performances. My love of Ethan Hawke is now well known. Um, <laughs> 
he's not going to win it, but it really is kind of a question mark now of Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, Rami Malek. Mm -hmm. And I think the Golden Globes gave everybody pause, like, oh, and we do have to remember, like, Bohemian Rhapsody was based off of a beloved British band's mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. life. And, you know, when you think of the voters for the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, that's a lot of British voters. And so now we're looking at, like, okay, so how do, like, a largely American voter population want to go with something like Bohemian Rhapsody, which packs a punch with a lot of its own controversies, um, including, you know, how truthful is the tale, but also, you know, the the, the BS word in the room, which is Brian Singer. Um, and so, but like, Rami you know, was really not the question. The performance by Rami Malek is less of a question, but is it, Yeah, it's like he's he's really super in the film. Do we love the film critically? It's it's kind of, it kind of runs the gamut, but like, but everybody comes away saying Rami is really great. Christian Bale, unquestionably, as Dick Cheney, is freakish. And scary. It's like, scary. He disappears in yeah. Dick Cheney. I point. feel like it's interesting <laughs> to me that you think this one is still so up for grabs because I feel like at this point, I, the momentum around Christian Bale to me feels pretty enough. But it also felt like Bradley was also, and, and this is the way I kind of think of like how, how voters will dole their chips, right? I don't think voters are going to be doling their chip for Bradley Cooper for best director. I think that's, so I think. So then they're know, going to put him in this. Exactly. Vote. I think people are going to be voting. So, so you look at a film on, on the whole, this is the fourth time this film has been remade. And so in a way, like, is it going to go that direction? Probably not. But like, mm -hmm. But when it comes to like, okay, where are we going to give this some kudos? There might be a really competitive race there with Bradley in the mix with Christian and Rami. Yeah. All right, those are the bold takes we have. We talked to Adam McKay about Christian Bale, among other things, and um, Vice. I talked to him on the phone. Stick around to listen to that, and we'll be right back. This red carpet season, enjoy the award-winning entertainment you love with AT&T's Unlimited and More Premium Plan. Get unlimited data and live TV, plus your choice of one of seven premium add-ons like HBO, Cinemax, or Pandora. Go to att.com unlimited to learn more. After 22 gigabytes per line per month, AT&T may temporarily slow data speeds when the network is busy. Note that video may be limited to standard definition. Choose one premium add-on only. Content, programming, and channels subject to change. Additional usage, speed, limits, and other restrictions apply. Thank you, Adam McKay, writer and director of Vice, for joining us on the awardist today. Thanks for being here. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, so congratulations on, on everything so far. Christian Bale managed to win not one but two awards for playing the same role at the Critics' Choice Awards for this performance. Um, tell me a little bit about how just this ride through this award season has been for you. Well, I was hoping he could somehow get three. I wanted him to get Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series, even though he wasn't in it. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Why not? No, no, I actually, it's so funny. There's so many, I had no idea he could win two. So I was like, wait, what just happened? Uh, I was a step slow on the whole deal. But um, obviously, incredibly well-deserved on his part. It's, you know, a breathtaking performance. And I was excited to see Amy Adams win uh, for her limited series and be nominated for Vice as well, because I I, I think she also just delivers an incredible performance in Vice. Uh, yeah, this award season's been very interesting. I mean, we, we certainly knew when we made, made this movie it was going to be uh, a, a movie that would 
draw plenty of fire uh, as well as supporters, and that's exactly what's happened. Uh, you know, it's an unusual style. It's a, a very, very uh, difficult, unpleasant uh, subject, but also important. And we've seen exactly that kind of play out. Uh, extreme, extreme love, and in some cases, extreme, extreme hate. Um, just like Dick Cheney and the Bush years themselves. What have people generally been most surprised by or least likely to believe is true in the film? You know, it's funny, I heard, uh, I actually heard some conservatives the other day saying they like the movie, but then they dismissed the stuff about like the Koch brothers and the Coors family is like conspiracy stuff. I'm like, that, no, that's, that's where they draw the line. That's yeah, what... they, they just dismissed a couple things in the movies as this conspiracy stuff. And I was like, no, that's factually checked. Read Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money. Like the Koch brothers founded the Cato Institute. They put money into these other groups. The Coors family came in with money. Like, so it's funny. They, they dismissed certain things or the idea of Roger Ailes being in the Nixon White House, like, oh, he's drawing all these. And I was like, no, he was in the Nixon White House. Like we can't, put that stuff in the movie so yeah i've heard some people dismiss some of the more shocking revelations because i think most people don't know that roger ailes was pitching conservative news to nixon back in the uh, mm -hmm. late 60s early 70s and you know that certainly could scramble someone's head about how they view fox news um so rather than kind of take it in i'm seeing some corners dismiss that kind of stuff um but but i always just say no we fact check this movie we're saying it it happened that was, I say, one of my biggest questions, I would say, coming out of watching it. So I have to be honest, I put off watching this movie a little bit, not because it didn't look good or I hadn't heard good things about it, but because I lived through this time. I even worked in politics during a good portion of this time. And so I think I was, uh, hard, it was hard for me to imagine there was going to be something that I still could find funny or shocking about it. And I was glad I watched it. I definitely, you made an amazing movie. It makes your case really powerfully. But my underlying question as I got through it was, who did you make this film for? Did you make it for people who didn't know about Roger Ailes, you know, and his connection to Nixon? Did you make it for people who only sort of had a, a very surface or headline idea of who Dick Cheney is? Who were you thinking about when you were putting it together? Yeah, I, th I think that's one of the other issues that's, that's proven to be kind of divisive about the film is you have people like yourself who worked in politics, you have journalists who are like, yeah, we knew this. And I'm like, yeah, it's not for you. Uh, fair. You know, totally the movies, fair. <laughs> the movies, I mean, you know, I still hope you got something out of it. I would still say the performances are so incredible that they're worth watching, and there's some moves we do in the movie that hopefully are surprising, and I'm sure there's a few things you didn't know in the movie, but because um, there's so much stuff in it. But uh, did you know about the solar panels on the White House? I, You know, that one I did not know, and I will say also I read the interview that you did with Mother Jones, I think, where you sort of give a little bit of a rebuttal about the question of how much this is about him versus the larger ideology and I have not I by no means have read all of the books that you read when you were putting this together or have fact checked something that much so I think the depth of it was fast and impressive so I mean so at the end here I'll just tell you the most gratifying responses I get to the movie yeah. are two levels of responses I get one that I've seen a lot which is uh, I'm young uh, I didn't live through this. Oh, my God. I didn't know the scope of all of this. This is incredible. And it was entertaining and upsetting. Uh, you know, I'm 24. This was amazing. You must see it. So 
that's like the best mm -hmm. because the truth is they're not going to teach this story in history classes. You're not going to see the full story of the false intelligence, the invasion, the torture. That might be like a grad level paper someone will write, but mm -hmm. there's kind of no consensus history. There's some great books written, but let's face it, the society we live in right now, yeah, there are people who read those books, but there's a lot of people that won't. So I really wanted this movie to be a marker in history like, hey, we didn't forget about this. This is what happened. And then the second level I love of reaction, and I've seen this in some older people actually, which is where, uh, and you see it with some of the younger people too, where there's a line drawn showing the sweep of history and how it definitely connects to where we're at now, how the Republican Party has been changing and growing. If you're a Republican, you love it because it's the Reagan revolution. And that it's not like this just happened in four years or eight years. This has been going on since the late 70s. Some might even argue the late 60s, the counter-revolution to the New Deal. And there's a lot of people that connect with that. And then at the same time, the emotion, the kind of reminder that, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a connection of the outrage of the past to the outrage of the present. That's, mm -hmm. that's a really exciting one as well. And then the third category is people who just love the filmmaking and style, which I know some people don't like, but there's a lot of like filmmakers who really, really love it and how well it's shot and the score and the acting. And some people are freaking out on that level. So when you ask who I made it for, that I, I made it to be, uh, we didn't forget this story mm -hmm. and we shouldn't forget this story. And to see young people react that way is really exciting. Was there, at what point did you decide on the, that style, the visual style of it, which is, you know, it's such a hybrid between, I think at the best, what a documentary can do if they're really using those graphics or they're using the additional footage. Was that at the script level? Was that when you got in to edit? Where did that come together? Well, here's what's funny about that. A lot of people are saying, oh, you use so much stock footage. A lot of the stuff in it, we shot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that people think are stock footage that actually aren't. I had a, a journalist the other day say, how did you get that footage of the subway car in England with the blood on the floor? I was like, no, we shot that. We, we so we were using that. Super 8. We were using video, the actual TV cameras that they would have been using. Greg Frazier, our DP, is incredibly talented and crafty. So there's less kind of stock in there than you think. There is, uh, there are obviously stock footage elements in the movie, but but uh, I, I think people think there's twice as much. But however, uh, the use of kind of a documentary rhythm that's completely fair. Uh, I I look at it, you know, we're in such unparalleled times right now, uh, staring down a bunch of just uh, you know epic, insane uh, situations from Trump to global warming, on and on that we really wanted to create a hybrid style. We really felt like we didn't want to be comfortable in a genre. So we purposely tried to just break genre throughout the movie and make it uncomfortable to watch. So you never settled into kind of that three-act structure, Sid Field kind of cruising speed of a movie. Uh, we're knocking the audience out of the movie, pulling them back in, doing absurdist comedy, sometimes going very dark. Uh, we really wanted it to to shock and remind and and be uncomfortable and then sometimes entertaining. Uh, so so the story never gets lost in just traditional filmmaking, which sometimes can happen. Um, so you know we knew that style was going to be difficult. I would say as far as influences go, you know definitely uh, the Italian movie Il Divo was a big influence. 
24 hour party people's always been a big influence <laughs> on me mm-hmm. um there's a few other movies obviously uh battle of algiers you know the, the docu style where you can't tell if it's real or not um have you watched um um have you watched hassan minaj's patriot act no, uh-uh. Um, it's interesting. It, I, I would say, so the series on Netflix, the way he presents it, it reminded me the most of this, of anything I've seen. Just this mix oh. of how, like, it's not stand-up. It's not, and I think a lot of people have been confused how to, what to do with it because it's not stand-up. It's like, yes, he is a man standing on a stage and he is humorous and there is, like, sort of a rhythm to it that feels a little bit like stand-up. But the way they use graphics in a very sort of full-screen way to me was the other thing that felt the most similar to that and that it's like look we're gonna spend 30 minutes talking about syria we're gonna spend 30 like it's it's deep i love it i'm gonna watch this immediately i've been in such a cave with this movie that i'm like behind on a bunch of stuff one of the movies that came out this year though that i did feel like was a cousin of our movies was sorry to bother you Mm -hmm. i felt like definitely like i've gotten to hang out with boots riley at a couple of these uh, awards things and he and i have like talked and talked and talked and definitely feels like we're coming into the same place from from different avenues uh, and i love that movie i thought that movie was incredible i love that that's a great connection um did you see there was a report in people that jared kushner and ivanka trump went to see vice and then abruptly walked out of a screening <laughs> in west palm beach over the holidays did you did, have you heard that <laughs> Someone told me that. Yeah, that's uh, one of the least surprising things I've ever heard. I'm it sure felt it like a scene out of Succession, actually, the show that you also worked on. Like, only, like, I, what, why do they go? I have so I mean, many questions. It felt like a scene we would actually shoot for Vice, where you would show the audience at one point and see Jared and Ivanka get up and walk out. Like, we actually at one point toyed with showing shots of the actual audience, and, and that would have been something we would have done. Yeah, that's... Uh, pretty remarkable do you Uh, want like do you if you if you could screen this film at the white house would you oh hell yeah who do you want who do you want to see this who as far as you know hasn't but you feel like it would i don't know if it would change them or you just would feel like it was a great moment of triumph to know that they had to sit through it like who who would be your your dream but unexpected audience I would say uh, Mary and Dick Cheney. Mm. Have you heard anything from anyone in the Cheney family? Well, Liz has been quite vocal about how much she hates the movie and has gone after Christian Bale. And Do you of, think she actually saw it? Uh, no, she heard his comment about Satan, but we will never know if she saw it or not. But she certainly has taken a couple shots, so mm-hmm. I don't know if she's seen it. I don't know if Lynn has seen it. I'm sure Lynn will hate it. Although, actually, I think in a lot of ways we depict her pretty well. Um, now, Dick and Mary would be the two. I would love to see what they would say. Uh, yeah, those would be my prime choices. Um, or I'd love, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to watch it with Mary because it's, it's very personal for her. Mm-hmm. But I'd just be very curious to hear what both of them think. I actually suspect Dick Cheney won't have much of a problem with the movie. Like, everything we show happened uh right. you know maybe the ending with his, with mary you know but they did do that you know they did support liz and liz did turn against mary i mean i he's he's pretty thick-skinned guy i actually don't think he would mind the movie i wonder if on that ego level also i mean he he comes across as being an incredibly powerful person right so well, he's a weird contradiction because yeah. he, there's part of him that he's always served power. He's been like the right-hand man to power. 
So I, he gets a big kick when people call him like Darth Vader or when like they pay attention to him. I think there's actually some insecurity in him about his power, and he loves being portrayed as powerful. So anyway, long-winded way of saying yes, I think he would really get a kick out of being depicted in a movie. And holy moly, I mean, what Christian does in showing him is just freakish. It's, yeah. If he depicted that accurately, I would think he would have to get a kick out of it. Let's talk about Christian for a second. I, I'm sorry if this is a, I feel like this is maybe a really obvious question, but when he thanked Satan, was he thanking Dick Cheney, or do you think he meant it in a either more literal or metaphorical way? I mean, he's 100% kidding, obviously, but I, I think, you know, the joke is to get into a character this dark, I, I, got, I got some notes from Satan. That's the joke. Yeah. But none of it's remotely literal. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for explaining the joke to me. Sorry. I, I, I laughed so hard. I couldn't believe yeah. it. Only Christian, only Christian could get up and say that and yeah. remotely get away with it, although I'm sure some people were upset. But for the most part, I, I think it played like a joke. More people were still confused somehow that he is British. Um, Not just British, Welsh. I know. I, yeah. Somehow baffling so many times. When, when did you and Christian first meet and what would you say is the most surprising thing to you about him first time he met was a uh, big short i got on the phone with him about that and i think the most surprising thing about him is boy oh boy he doesn't care about like the he really likes to do challenging difficult roles and movies and he really loves it when they cause a stir. He really likes that Vice has has gotten this kind of uh, cleaver split reaction where some people are loving it and some people are hating it. He loves it. Mm -hmm. He's like totally energized by it. He really wants, I mean, I guess at root what I'm saying, and it's not the coolest thing to say about people, especially sometimes in America, but at root I was surprised by how much of an artist he is. Mm -hmm. He really is at root an artist. And he's not looking for the praise. He really wants to challenge himself, and he's really fascinated by the process. He hates talking about the process. He just wants to do it. And there's, like, a courage to that that's really uh, contagious. Um, and that surprised me. You just never know. I mean, there's a part of every actor wants to be a little bit liked, you know, and... I'd say there's a few actors I've worked with through the years who have that kind of, you know, no, it's about the work approach, and, and he, he's definitely top of the list. And let's talk about Amy Adams for a minute. Amy Adams, who is so great, I feel like this, this reigning and frustratingly persistent question about Amy is sort of when will it be her year unquestionably, but what what was your favorite performance of hers in this film? Oh, my God. She's just, I mean, I think of the movie as the Dick Cheney story, but the Dick Cheney story is, is Lynn Cheney and Dick Cheney. Mm -hmm. So when I think of the portrait we drew, it's the two of them. Uh, and I needed someone who, you know, you couldn't knock them down in a, in a, you know, in a hurricane. And that's Amy Adams. Uh, she has this, just naturally, this combination. She grew up in Colorado of this kind of uh, middle of the country kind of strength and toughness, but at the same time kind of sweetness and charisma, a lot like Lynn Cheney. And she really had a lot of resources to draw on for this character. I, I just got a bunch of great moments, but I, I got to say, like, I mean, obviously when she chews out Dick Cheney, that's incredible. When she goes in campaigns for him, it's pretty great. But it's a quiet, small moment that I think is the best when they both decide to let Liz, uh, you know, turn on her sister. 
and she looks at Dick and just clearly off of his look they're going to say yes and then she kind of looks up and there's a beat and then she kind of gives this pleasant smile mm-hmm. that one moment is so real and kind of gives me the chills every time um so heartbreaking and so heartbreaking and like I, I'm always amazed I mean we're talking about Dick Cheney but I'm always really saddened by that moment and I guess you know the one thing he always loved was his family and to see him use those divisive tools that gave rise to the Republican Party to see, you know, those be the undoing of his family. It's, you can't help but feel like it's tragic, even though this is a guy who, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died because of the Iraq war. So it's, yeah, it's a complex moment. And I just think that look she gives right after that moment is so incredible. Mm -hmm. I I Mm -hmm. talk about it all the time. Um, how do you personally balance your political and your entertainment intake? Like, where where do you find that balance? I'm the biggest. I I love everything. I love all genres. I love I love junky reality shows. I love you know strange Russian art films. I just watch everything. I'm I'm a fan. I'm one of those filmmakers who got to this by being a fan first. And so, uh, you know, some people were pissed at the end of the movie because I made a joke about Fast and the Furious. And I'm like, no, I love the Fast and the Furious <laughs> movies. They're great. I made Talladega Nights. What are you talking about? I meant it just to be a comment on how our political situation is so divided that sure. people just go into entertainment. And people were like, how dare you? You're like, I uh, chose that movie very carefully because I love it. <laughs> I'm friends with Dwayne Johnson. I know Neil Moritz. Like, no, those movies are a blast. So I, I I go all over the place. I mean, at, at my roots, if I'm really like on the couch and can't get to sleep, I, I generally turn towards documentaries. Um, you know, Wild Wild Country is one of the best things I've mm-hmm. seen in a while. Mm-hmm. I thought that was incredible. The, what's it called? Three Perfect Strangers? Is mm-hmm. that the name? Uh, identical Strangers. I, I'm sorry, Three yeah. Identical Strangers. I thought that was incredible. Yeah. Um, I tend to go back to stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I'm not beyond uh, occasionally, uh, you know, eating some Taco Bell and watching the forensic files. <laughs> 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 that definitely could be on my agenda. And I watch a lot of NBA. I'm a huge NBA fan. So, um so yeah, yeah, it was funny. I took flack for that. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not. God bless. Fast and furious. <laughs> Thank God we have it. Um, is there an issue that you feel as captivated or person, I guess, as captivated by as you did Cheney that might be where you turn your attention next? Well, about halfway through making the movie, I mean, we all knew global warming was a big issue, but it, it clearly got much more present, and the clock shortened up a lot with that UN report that came out. Um, fortunately, we had some of that built into the Cheney movie. He was a guy, mm-hmm. and the Republican Party have stopped action on global warming, so it was natural to the movie. But I feel like it's a hard one to ignore that we've been told there's there's a countdown clock of 11 years uh, that we got to get rid of, you know, uh, carbon emissions or else mankind could go extinct. I, I feel like there's no other issue. Maybe nuclear war could certainly be mentioned, but it doesn't seem as pressing right now. So, yeah, global warming, I, it's, I mean, I'd love to just go back and do a fun comedy, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to think you, of an idea. It's a really hard yeah. one. Maybe there is a comedy we can do about global warming. I'm kicking around some ideas, but I just feel like as a person on the planet i just can't you know we all do what we do and i make movies it's just not to comment on it It feels Mm -hmm. just wrong on some level so i'm trying to cook something up i have a couple ideas i look forward to it okay one one final question we've been asking everyone we've had on the podcast 
um, you know, it's award season. It turns into a campaign season at a, at a certain point. But um, rather than campaign for yourself, if you were going to campaign for someone else in your category, either on the directing side or the writing side, who this year would you be out there stumping for? Who would you be the Lynn Cheney for? I would be out there stumping hard for uh, Beale Street. Mm. I thought it was beautiful, beautiful movie. I think Barry Jenkins is a master filmmaker. My friend Nick Bertel did the score, which I think is stunning. I would say Beale Street or Sorry to Bother You mm -hmm. would be the two that would pop right into my mind. Uh, in fact, I get to vote in a couple of these things, and those, those are definitely two movies I'll be giving votes to. But there's obviously tons of cool movies. The idea of ranking anything seems a little crazy. But, uh, but yeah, Barry Jenkins, man. That guy yeah, is right? not <laughs> playing around. And, and Boots Riley, that fresh, original voice out of left field. I want more of that. Yeah, that sounds good. Me too. Uh, that's all I have for you. Anything else you want to say that you want to talk about that you're doing next? Anything else you're working on? No, we're just uh, we're getting into the second season of uh, Succession. There's already been a couple scripts written. Gave some notes on some outlines. Jesse Armstrong is cranking away over in London, and I cannot wait. Oh, uh, I love that show so much. I I had a friend say to me, they <laughs> generally speaking have tried in recent years to basically stop watching films or TV shows with straight white male protagonists. I just I was like, I only have so many days in the like hours in the day. I want to try to, to really push this on myself. And I had a friend who said, if you were going to make an exception for one more thing about rich white people, make it be succession. And I was so glad that I did. I enjoyed uh, I it so it. much. Um, I, I got a funny email from a friend of mine going like, dude, what are you going to stop making movies about old white guys? And I'm like, the old white guys, a lot of them are the ones who screwed up the world. What am I supposed to do? And yeah. <laughs> uh, succession kind of falls into that. But, yeah, I'm kind of with you. I, I need a break from white dudes after Vice. There's Although no still, Siobhan is my fave. I mean, she's so... Oh, she's awesome, yeah. I, I got to say. <laughs> and that cast, uh, you'll see as it, as it continues, it becomes more and more international and... Uh, and but you know, let's face it. A lot of the oligarchical, or oligarchical families, you know, the Redstones, the Murdochs, all of them tend to be white. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, in neither case, like Succession nor Vice, are these like films about rich white, now rich white people who uh, the takeaway message is, and what great choices they've made. <laughs> um, how nice! What a what, well, a, what a life to emulate. There's a few people who have watched uh, Vice who are uh, right-leaning who have said something to that effect, and I'm like, oh, my God, they'd do it all over again, wouldn't they? Well, I think uh, that's, like, kind of that underlying question, right, which I, I know you talked about with Mother Jones, and I'm going to let you go, but is, you know, that it, I think when I saw it, I was like, does this movie put so much on, and Christian Bale is so good that he, I think he takes this on, that some viewers who may not have who may not have lived through this or may not have that added context well, they come away thinking more that this is about this power, you know, hungry person who is maybe in the shadows but is, has done this versus, you know, that this is, he is part of an ideological cabal of people who believe that America in its dominance shouldn't have to play by the rules. Yeah, I mean, I think you put your finger on exactly what was tricky about this movie is we tried to tell the story of a man who I would say, if you had to make someone the face of the Republican Party, it'd be Dick Cheney, because you don't really know what his face looks like. So we were trying to tell the story of a man mm -hmm. and a political party. 
you know, there's obviously a lot of mishmash, claptrap ideologies that filter into the Republican Party from Ayn Rand to Leo Strauss and all that kind of stuff. But really, when you really look at the history of the Republican Party, it's been a, a will to power for the 1% uh, is pretty much the arc of what's gotten them here. So that was a very tricky juggling act for it. We tried to show both. Um, mm-hmm. And going back and forth between the two was uh, sometimes tricky. But I, I feel pretty good about what we got in there with the think tanks and the Reagan revolution. And, you know, it's a piece of history a lot of people don't know that there didn't used to be think tanks. There didn't used to be hundreds of thousands of lobbyists in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. The regulations didn't used to be stripped. But a change happened. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that was definitely one of the ambitions. So hopefully that, that reads for some people. Awesome. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. All right. Best wishes. Thanks, you too. Bye. Thanks to the directors we've spoken to. Thank you, Pia and Katie, for joining me in this conversation. Uh, Thank you to those of you listening for joining us. Uh, We are getting closer, closer through award season. We still have Producers Guild Awards, the Screen Actor Guild Awards. Oscars. There's always complete awardist coverage on EW.com and in the magazine. Next week, we will be back a little bit later in the day on Tuesday because we will be breaking down that morning's Oscar nominations. All these questions we've had about what impact things will have on the big awards, we will have more of an answer for you next week. Be sure to watch um, EW's Twitter and Instagram stories for more immediate reactions. Please subscribe. Uh, The Awardist is on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you are listening to podcasts or might want to. While you're at it, check out our TV critics' new podcast, Best of Shows, with Kristen Baldwin and Darren Franich. This week, they are talking about true detective, sex education, and trying to figure out what kind of TV the masked singer is. It's a lot of fun. Um, Please go check out our colleagues there. Thank you, as always, for joining us here at The Awardist and for coming to EW for all of your entertainment needs. We'll talk to you next week.